Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than Arnold Schwarzenegger looking around for Turbo Man. Jingle all the way. What a Christmas film. My name's Ash Rose, your host and guide on this, the original 1990s football podcast, Alive and Kicking. Thanks for hitting that download button and joining us once again on a feature-length episode of the show and we're doing another rivalry show um this week in the 90s we'll be back next week with joe young and matthew christ my regular guests and uh, they're not guests they are part of the team they will be back next week for another dose of this week in the 90s but we're going back to rivalries this week and bringing in some um some fresh meat off the bench actually two guests that we haven't had on for a while but they're brilliant in their respective fields uh fresh off the back of the merseyside derby on sunday go what a derby that was as well, wasn't it? Absolute mental in those last moments, thanks to Jordan Pickford's brain fart, Dorico Rigi's goal, and then Jurgen Klopp doing what he did, and now he's been charged and all that nonsense. Yeah, well, we're talking Merseyside derbies in the 90s, which also had their fair share of fireworks during the decade as well. Join us on the show. It's a brilliant welcome back to journalist Richard Buxton, who's a man very much at the heart of Merseyside in 2018. You'll find work on both sides of Stanley Park from Richard across a plethora of outlets. I think he was even in Dortmund last week uh, talking to a couple of guys out there for the many things that he uh, he has his mitts on. He was at the World Cup in the summer as well, so Richard's a great guest to have back on. And also returning and fighting for the more the blue corner. He's written books on Everton's in the 80s and he's got a fantastic book out at the moment. It's called World in Motion, the story of Italian 90. We had him as part of our our live team when we did our live show at Golazzo in the summer and he is author and journalist for UEFA uh, when he's not writing those books Simon Hart so he'll be batting for the Everton side and we've got Richard Buxton on the red side as well so all good covering Merseyside and the derbies and as we talk that amazing 4-4 Kenny Dalglish we'll talk Bruce Grobelar and Steve McManaman's fracas. There's more fireworks with Franny Jeffers and Sandra Vestavel. Even Stephen Gerrard gets involved in the at the end of the decade. Danny Cadamateri, anyone? Duncan Ferguson, Joe Rowe, all is covered with Merseyside derbies in the 90s. The second show we've done in this kind of rivalry section that we're doing of the podcast. So I hope you enjoy that today. Um, keeping that theme as well, I just mentioned his name there. We've got a special interview as well on this show. And it was a real, I think I tweeted this at the time, it was a few weeks ago that I interviewed him. We've had many guests on this show. Real, real, real lucky to have so many fantastic guests uh, on all these. I think we, you know, we're approaching 100 episodes of Alive and Kicking and the majority of them have had some brilliant names from the 90s on it. Um, just off the top of my head, you think of Roy Evans, Mickey Quinn, Paul Walsh, uh, Brian Dean on our very first episode. Um, mm. Some of the QPR players, personally, that we've had, like Kevin Gallen and Simon Barker. They've all been brilliant, but to speak to Bruce Grobelar for today's show uh, was a little bit special. Someone who was such a big character and a massive part of that Liverpool team in the early 90s when they were still coming out their 80s dominance. Uh, yeah, great to talk to him as he talks about that transitional period at Liverpool coming up from that successful title winning team going into the Graham Soonis era then off to Southampton of course those allegations were match fixed in we talked to him as well about his new book which you'll be able to win so keep an eye on the Twitter feed in the next few days because you'll be able to get your chance to win a copy of Bruce's brand new autobiography just in time for Christmas for yourself or a Christmas gift I'm halfway through it it's a great read so keep an eye on the Twitter feed there at 
AK90s. Um, just a little bit of housework before we get into the meat of the show. As I said, follow us on Twitter there at AK90s or on Instagram at AK90s Pod. Uh, we are doing our usual 90s football advent calendar thing, so check out some silly pictures of footballers dressed all Christmassy in the 90s there. Talking the 90s, since our last show, right? Talking the 90s, that's what we do on it. But yeah, again, talking about the 1990s. We've had a Spice Girls reunion and Mick McCarthy is now the island manager. Feels like it's 1996 all over again. And I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, yeah, what was I saying? Oh, keep in touch with the show. Yeah, AK90sPod on Instagram. Um, and also, if you could rate, review, share, subscribe on iTunes or however you uh, listen to your podcast, that would be amazing. But here is us talking 1990s rivalries. It's red. It's blue. It's Merseyside. It's Liverpool and Everton. Myself, Simon Hart, Richard Buxton and Bruce Grubbelart. Enjoy the show and obviously keep it 90s. Sit back and enjoy a nostalgic ride through the decade that truly changed the face of football. If the 90s are now retro, then it's time for a celebration. Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. Welcome back to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast, the original one, of course, and we're back on Rivalries, uh, this feature-length episode, and fresh off what has been quite a controversial weekend of derbies, especially a 96th minute winner, which we'll talk about in a minute, in the Merseyside derby. We are talking Liverpool and Everton in the 90s, quite an interesting contrast to the decade previous and kind of where we see the teams now, actually, um, Liverpool and Everton. The 90s is quite a funny one for Merseyside, where there was a lot of transitional periods, as we'll talk about uh, as we go on. Joining me are two, well, I'll say newbies. The first is actually a returning guest. We haven't actually had him on for a while. He's always brilliant. He's an, a, a man about town, a journalist when it comes to Merseyside, covers both the red and the blue. Um, he's Richard Buxton. How you doing, Richard? Very good, Ash. Good to be back as well. Yeah, good to have you back. Uh, you were there on Sunday, I believe, weren't you? I was, yeah. It, okay. was, um, it was a manic place to be filing uh, on the whistle reports and getting reaction, but um, such is life, I suppose. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, flying the flag for the blue side as well. Someone else who, I've said movies, I'm actually completely wrong on that, because this guy was part of our live show that we did at the Golazzo Bar in London in the summer. He's author of the brilliant, brilliant book, World in Motion. If you need a Christmas gift on your list uh, as we head into that uh, period, then you get this book if you like Italian 90. Uh, Simon Hart, how you doing, Simon? Yeah, very well, Ash. Um, it's good to be back on with you. You're feel, probably feeling a little bit less chirpier than, than Richard from Saturday, uh, Sunday night, though, aren't you? You might say that, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it, was a, it was a derby day of uh, many ups and downs, but yeah, that woman's uh, particularly... I mean, Richard, you were there, as you mentioned. I mean... Bizarre goal and obviously the Klopp thing. And I mean, it was just a bizarre ga- a moment in Merseyside history, wasn't it? Very strange, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I, I think Everton on the on bounce play should have got a point if not smashed a winner there. I think they were they were probably the best they've been at Anfield for a good two decades now. I mean, they set up well and played very well. And if the chances had gone the way, obviously they had quite a few. I reckon they could have come away with a victory there. But I mean, it was a strange, uh, strange goal to concede, and, and everything around it, the celebrations and everything else that went with it. I mean, when the Liverpool players were celebrating, it was like they'd, they'd got through to the cup final. The way some of them were were carrying on. I mean, Virgil Van Dijk was swinging his arms around windmill, and it was, it was, it was quite surreal. But you know, derbies do that to people. They do bring out that sort of you know emotional side in you, and you do kind of go a bit over the top sometimes. 
Mm. And Simon, obviously, a, a, a difficult defeat to take. But I mean, as derbies go, I mean, is it nice to see that kind of atmosphere in in that sort of Merseyside derby? Because it's not always. Sometimes they can be a bit of a damp squib. But that, I mean, that atmosphere, as, as much as it was on the wrong side, was was something else at the end, wasn't it? Um, I, the television was off at that point, <laughs> um, so no, it's not nice to see at all. If it's your team on the receiving end, um, I mean, it's it's funny really. I, I went to hear Marco Silva speak on on the day before the game. You know, he spoke very well about this being a, a new Everton team with you know players who will go there with no fear. Um, in fact, I, I was in Richarlison's house on Thursday evening, uh, speaking to him and his agent. And clearly, you know, here's a young kid from Brazil with absolutely no no idea of the history of, of the Merseyside derby. And Everton went into that game and played like a team, you know, with, with no real, you know, shoulders of, of that record. And yet, and yet, you know, once again, we end up with, a, you know, a, a, another reason for, for fans, at least, to go into that fixture with dread. Um, you know, it's funny how history repeats itself, even with, a, you know, a new group of players. Mm. Well, let's talk about the history then. That's what we're here to do. Um, we've also got an interview with Bruce Grobler that I conducted a few weeks ago. His new book is out, another one to put on your Christmas list, and he talks a little bit about Everton, a little bit about that famous clash with McManaman, which we'll talk about in a bit as well. Um, before we talk 90s, guys, um, Simon especially, because you, I believe you've written a book on Everton in the previous decade. Um, that's just sort of a little bit of back history. I mean, the 80s between Liverpool and Everton, Simon, were more silverware for both clubs, um, so more at the height, whereas the 90s kind of dipped, but... So where were we come 1990 with the with the rivalry? Um, I mean, f- f- for Everton with the rivalry, the, the the 90s, the beginning of the 90s were were a period where the, the the club was beginning to stagnate. You know, they'd been one of the the, the instigators of the of the Premier League. You know, one of one of the the so called Big Five at the time who pushed for that breakaway, and yet just as football was was gaining this you know this fresh um, sense of dynamism, you know, with with the new Premier League. Everton had a period where John Moores, the chairman, was was you know suffering ill health. Somebody came in called Dr. David Marsh about nineteen ninety two as as the chairman, and and really he, he, there was no there was a sense that Everton just just stood still as a club for a few years. Um, so really, for the nineties at the beginning at least were were a period of of decline. Mm. And, and, and Richard for Liverpool as well I mean the 90s are always looked at a transitional period especially coming back off we talk about the 80s in Everton Liverpool they were both league titles for the clubs they were those cup finals as well the, the 90s were very different for this derby weren't they? They were obviously Everton had the, had the more superior record over Liverpool probably over the, the mid to late part of the decade but I mean I think in terms of Liverpool the, I think you, you wonder how much of a change that happened both in terms of the actual personnel and also the psychological change connected to Hillsborough affected the club. I mean, there's been a lot of a lot said about that period and and the and the, the preceding era and um you do wonder about how much emphasis is put on the Kenny Daglish resignation in nineteen ninety one, which we're gonna to touch upon. But I think probably the seeds of of the, the demise started sooner. I think a lot of things changed behind the scenes at Anfield and you know, I mean the path of history could have changed several times quite drastically. You know, the, the boom continuity might have been lost a lot sooner, if you believe what some people say. And I think Liverpool went into a bit of a wilderness period, partly of their own making and partly because of the change in times. I think they were kind of the uh, the grand old club who were similar to Everton. They were, you know, the, the best days had, had, had been and gone. Uh, and this new era came up. You had Man United coming in, you had the advent of the Premier League. And United were very well placed for that. And I think Liverpool 
through their own um, probably stubbornness as, as a business entity, didn't actually fall in line with that. And you do wonder if they had, where would they have ended up, and would they would they only just be getting back to where they are now? Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk. We'll go through the, the each by season. We won't stay, uh, talk on every game because we'll, we'll be here far too long when we need to. Because there's uh, there's certain games that didn't really mean anything in a decade. But we'll touch on some of the big uh, talking points between these two teams um, in the nineties. The first game between Liverpool and Everton was on the third of February, nineteen ninety of this decade. It was a two-one win for Liverpool with goals from. John Barnes and Peter Beardsley, Graham Sharp of Everton. Uh, this came following a 9-0, the classic 9-0 win and the 8-0 win over uh, Palace and then Swansea for Liverpool in the 1989-90 season, of course, which they went on uh, to win the league as well. Uh, but we're going to kick off really with the 1990-91 season, um, specifically, um, specifically, sorry, I should say, um, in February. But there was a game on the 22nd of September uh, 1990 where uh, Liverpool went 3-0 up at uh, Goodison Park with goals from... Peter Beardsley twice and John Barnes before Stuart McCall and Andy Hinchcliffe clawed back again. But we're going to February 1991. Um, before we talk about that epic cup tie, there was a league game um, before days before this, which I actually completely forgot about until I was researching this, where Liverpool uh, played Everton at Anfield, a 3-1 win. Uh, Jan Mulby scored and David Speedy. There's a Liverpool name you don't hear very often with two goals and Pat Nevins uh, Consolation for Everton in Doug Leach's last league game. Um, but Simon, coming to you first, let's talk about this FA Cup game. I mean, I remember this um, not much, so much the first game because that was a goalless draw at Anfield, but obviously the, the first replay at Goodison Park. What do you remember about the draw? I mean, it's not often we see that anymore that we ever deliver being drawn in the so early in the FA Cup. What do you remember firstly about the draw, and then we'll talk about that famous four-four. Yeah, I remember the um, there was a, there was a one-one draw at Anfield in, in the first game, which was televised live. Um, and I think Everton came away from that game thinking um, they, they you know they might have, have, have sneaked it. Um, so they go back to Anfield, and um, you know Liverpool were, were the better team at the time, better players. And if you look at Liverpool's goals, I mean Barnes in particular scores a, a brilliant kind of curling shot from the edge of the box. Everton just kept coming back with, you know, some awful defending by Liverpool, mm. if you look at the highlights. Um, and it was a peculiar derby because, you know, Everton actually came back four times, which is, you know, it, 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 I don't think we, 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 it hadn't happened before and it hasn't happened since. No, it was one of those games I, as in my earliest days of, of watching football, it really, really stands out for me. And you mentioned that John Barnes goal. I think it's one of those goals he was quite famous for, that curler into the top corner. Uh, Richard, that 4-4, I mean, it's, as we say, it's one of the, it's probably one of the greatest derbies, not just of this decade, but certainly of the, in modern era. I'd say so, yeah. I mean, I just want to pick you up on the point about the, the rarity of Liverpool and Everton drawing so early in the cup. They've had quite a few recent ones, um, I think, they had a, I think it was a fourth round in 2009 and a third round last season, 2017-18. So it's becoming more frequent, but back then it was, you know, it was always a semi-final or a yeah. final that they'd meet. They'd never, they'd never really cross roads early on in, in, in a competition. But, um, I mean, it, it was a little bit before my time, this game, but since then I've seen it countless times. I've seen the goals. I've seen the game in its entirety. And, I mean, we, myself and Simon know how... how Mental Goodison can be when the atmosphere is so lively, um, and this is you know this this is now post post Taylor report. So you know I can only imagine what what it was like being on the terraces of Goodison in nineteen ninety one because it it wasn't just just you know the spectacle of the, of the game. It was the goals as well. As you said that that Barnes one was brilliant. The Cotty goals are, are really really impressive as well. If you're looking at it from a you know a striker's yeah. standpoint, you know, um, and I think obviously. It's it's a with what happened with Kenny resigning after it. Obviously, that was 
that obviously fueled the narrative of, of how much of a pulsating game it was. I think it, probably if it was a 4-4, it'd be talked about. But if nothing actually happened in the aftermath of it, I think it may be not, potentially not remembered as fondly. Yeah, you mentioned it there. Obviously, Kenny Dalglish resigned two days afterwards. I mean, Richard, this is still with Hillsborough fresh in, in, in his mind as well. Do you, do you, this was just the last straw in the, the, the pressure cooker that is being manager of Liverpool and this was it for him? I think in terms of Kenny, yeah, I think he, I think, you know, you got to remember, he, it wasn't just the on-field side of things he had to manage, he had to manage the, the fallout and the emotional um, wrench that happened with, you know, having to deal with such a, you know, a, a devastating loss of life and he, he and his wife and his, his whole family, in fact, were, were there for the families of the bereaved and the survivors um, so I think that probably was the probably was the, the, the final straw of him. But I mean, I think Liverpool. When I talked about it before, Liverpool probably were walking into a sort of demise before then. I think. I mean, a few things have come come to light recently. The one of them was that um, they lost their scout Jeff Twentyman when Dagley took over in 1986. He was supposedly forced to retire for ill health, and um, matter of I think weeks or months later, he ended up at uh, Rangers scouting for Graham Souness. So. Um, that seems to be a decision when it came to bite the club and all. So there was a few other things happening behind the scenes. With I mean, the change reserve team managers. I think it was um, Chris Waller, who was quite a well thought of defender of Bill Shankly's time, was in charge of the reserve team, and he was um, replaced by I think it was Phil Thompson, and that really didn't go down well. And obviously they phased out plays probably quicker than than maybe the boom dynasty did. I mean, I seem to recall in the going back into the previous decades they had. Um, Phil Neal and Alan Kennedy retired at the end of the well, they left the club at the end of the eighty-five, eighty-six season. So there was various things that Liverpool did differently, and I mean this whole narrative that Graham Soon has changed to things too quickly. I think Liverpool were probably changing things a bit too mm. quickly themselves. But I think in terms of Kenny, yeah, I think I think you know one man can only deal with so much, and you know with a club like Liverpool with the expectancy and the pressure, and then you've got to deal with something which is completely out of your remit, and you know you have to be strong for everyone. I mean, it takes on anybody. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how did the news of Doug Leash go down on the other side of town? Because, obviously, he's been such a big figure for Liverpool. This game, being with Everton's sort of part in the story, how did the, the resignation go down at Goodison? Yeah, um, just, I'll just add one thing to, uh, to what Richard was saying, because Doug Leash gave an interesting quote recently, I think, maybe in an interview, which was time when he collected his knighthood. Um, he, he said that at that 4-4 game, he turned around on, on at some point he sat on the bench and he turned around to one of his assistants I don't know if it was Ronnie Moran and said you know should I make a change and he sat back after that and thought you know if I'm actually at a stage where I'm asking somebody else if I should make a change then I'm no longer you know able to do my job properly um, which I find interesting mm. um, from Everton point of view um, I remember being at uh, I was at, I remember hearing the news at school uh, at lunchtime um, I was in sixth form at the time, and uh, being as an Evertonian, you know, bit thinking it was it was potentially a good thing that Kenny had gone, um, given you know what what a great figure he'd been in Liverpool. Um, when Sunes came in, you know, he, Sunes had done so well at Rangers. Um, so from an outsider looking in, and I'm sure many Liverpool fans must have thought the same. You're thinking Liverpool's one of Liverpool's greatest ever captains. You know the. The on-field leader of that, that that brilliant team in the early '80s, who'd done so well with Rangers coming back, you know, it felt like the, the, you know the success would continue. Mm, yeah, no, indeed, and, and we'll go on to the, the replay, of course, uh, the second replay in those days when we used to do more than one. Everton won that one eventually, one nil for a Dave Watson goal. I mean, uh, Simon, just finishing on that point, it's uh, was that seen as a big success at the time, knocking Liverpool out of the FA Cup. 
Yeah, of course, yes. Um, particularly as, you know, Everton weren't the team they had been um, four or five years previously. Um, you know, there'd been this, this slow decline. Yeah, I'd been at Wembley in 89 and seen them lose the Cup Final 3-2. We'd lost the Cup Final 3-1 in, in 86. So to beat Liverpool, you know, in a big Cup game, it meant an awful lot. Because um, that, that was the time Everton were... There were essentially two factions in the squad. There was... Um, the players who'd been there in the in the eighties and seen it and done it, and then players who'd come in, and the two the two sides didn't really gel. Um, so, for example, Tony Cotty, who scored twice in that in the four four, uh, Graham Sharp scored twice. Those two never hit it off. Um, Sharpie once told me that Cotty wouldn't go drinking with them in you know, the pub where they all went in Southport. He'd go to another pub, and there just weren't those those tight bonds between the groups. Mm-hmm. And I think Sharp thought that Cotty wasn't the same kind of hardworking player that. You know, we'd seen in somebody like Adrian Heath, so it was it was it, it was a great moment, but it, it was really just a sticking plaster in terms of you know Everton's you know decline at that point. Mm. Uh, we'll go on to ninety one eight two thirty first of August, Liverpool three, Everton one. Um, Go after 48 seconds open to scoring, but Burrows, Saunders and Houghton for Liverpool and Mike Newell for Everton. And then the teams met again on the 28th of December 1991, which is one all draw at Goodison with Mo Johnson and Nicky Tanner. I don't think there's too many games where such different personalities and names you don't really hear with the Merseyside derby as much with, scored with that one. Uh, but we're going to next stop is on the 7th of December 1992, the following season. This is a win for Everton at Goodison Park. 2-1 win. Mo Johnson again on the, on the score sheet but the man we want to talk about Mr Peter Beardsley guys I mean Beardsley coming to you first Richard obviously uh, a great for Liverpool not many players especially in the last sort of two decades Nick Barnby is obviously one I can remember do that transfer what did you remember at the time I know you it was a little bit before what do you see of the time Peter Beardsley making that trip across Stanley Park I mean from from speaking to people who were obviously a bit older than me and, and remember it at the time obviously family members and that there wasn't a great deal of acrimony that were in that one, as as you saw with um, with the Nick Barnby transfer, I think it's <coughs> excuse me, it's one of those transfers. I think Liverpool, I think probably were, were evolving the team, and I think Beardsley probably. I mean, he had a great run in that nineteen ninety one season, but um, I think probably Liverpool under Sunes decided that um, you know they needed to try and go for something a bit more. I don't know, probably a bit more technical, um, a bit more uh, what they used to, and I think probably Beardsley probably was. It probably a problem for Sooners, I suppose, because you know you wouldn't you wouldn't sell one of your best players to, to your rivals, and I don't think he was probably one of Liverpool's best player at the time. But um, yeah, I don't. I, I, from from what people told me, it didn't seem to cause a great deal of consternation from the red half. But I mean, again, that that might just be you know a bias slant, really. I think it's such an odd one, Simon, because Peter Beardsley is he obviously was a great for Liverpool um, when he went on to Newcastle as well. They were, you know, he got himself back in the England squad around Euro '96. What, what did you make of the signing for Everton? How is Peter Beardsley seen uh, as an Evertonian and Everton player in, in those parts? Yeah, it is funny. He's not really remembered as an Everton player. I don't suppose even by Evertonians. You know, his success um, with Liverpool and Newcastle. Um, he was probably the right player at the wrong time for Everton. Um, one comment Neville Southall made was that um, he, he'd give the ball away as others couldn't see what he was thinking. I mean, he was too good at that time for that Everton side. Um, I mean, I remember, there was a point where they were called the, the kind of the mighty midgets because he was in the team with with people like Mark Ward, Cotty. Um, 
I mean, he, he was such a good player, but around him they didn't have the, the, the quality really to complement it. Um, in fact, that Derby game, I, I remember it less as a Beardsley game than as Billy Kenny's game because Billy Kenny was this this young homegrown scout kid um, who came in and. You know, he, he was a can I don't know if he was the man of the match, but he was a candidate for man of the match that game. Um, and it was it was it was a, a kind of a fleeting, you know, glimpse of, of what might have been because his his career really went off the rails. I think we spoke about him actually year, uh, years ago on this show when we were talking about youngsters, and I think his name was briefly touched upon by someone on the show. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't realise that was the game that. Um, he, he made such an impact to him. But yeah, um, but going back to Beardsley, I mean, he's someone on here that we talk about generally about being some, someone so underrated. So, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just an, a unique moment in the, the career of um, Peter Beardsley. That was Everton's 50th victory in a Merseyside derby. The return fixture that season, 20th of March, 1993. Liverpool won, Everton nil. This was a last-minute winner from Ronnie Rosenthal. Yeah, he does hit the back of the net sometimes. 93-94, uh, the 18th of September, uh, 93, Everton 2, Liverpool nil. Goals from Mark Ward and Tony Cotty. But this game is best remembered, and someone mentioned it on Twitter when we put it out last night. John Smith, I think I believe his name was. Uh, for the McManaman and Grobler fracas, Richard. Uh, what do you remember about this, or have uh, seen since, of uh, Grobler versus McManaman? A little bit of nothing, really, in the end? Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting, because Grobler had four months coming out the Liverpool team. I think there was um, an incident with Jim Began in the 86 Cup final, where he actually... Did something similar, but um, I mean, it's interesting that um, the Grobbler recently revealed that he wasn't actually aiming for McManaman in the uh, in the in the fracas. He was actually trying to get at Mark Walters, which is is interesting and also um, intriguing because Mark Walters' middle name, as most people know, is Everton. Yes. So it's uh, a double reason. I think, I think Grobbler said he wanted to drown him in the bath. Um, but McManaman was, was obviously caught in the crossfire and obviously didn't take too kindly to it. And and I think that was probably that became a bit of a snapshot of the um, of what was wrong with the Sooners area at Liverpool. I think a lot of people thought you know that sort of thing went on quite regularly, but it didn't. I mean, it went on the Dagliche time with Grobler. It's just Grobler had this tendency because of his passion that he, he would he would you know earmark someone to have, to have a, a bit of an ear battering at. And Simon, I mean, from the opposition. It's always nice, especially in a derby, to see the teammates fighting. I mean, you, is it one of those moments you think we're going to win this today because they're all over the shop? Even there, there's infighting going on. Well, Richard harks back to the, uh, the Groblo Beglin moment, so so I'd say no because you know I remember seeing Groblo go for Beglin in '86 when Everton were on top yeah. in, in the cup final, losing that game eventually. So. You know, I, I'm far too, um, you know, experienced even then to, um, to to take anything for granted against Liverpool. Um, but I mean, for Everton, that was a win that really meant nothing because um, a week later they lost five one at home to Norwich, and Kendall won only two more games as manager before he left in December that year. So it was really, you know, it, it was a good moment, but it had no real significance. Mm. I mean, that season for Everton, Simon, was was the one we always remember, the last sort of moments of the season with Graham Stewart against Wimbledon. I mean, do you not look back on that win saying those three points could have maybe gone, you know, contributed to, to surviving? Or is it really, like you say, an, a nondescript win for of the decade? Well, no, of course they contributed, but um, I felt the Wimbledon game was, was hugely important um, because... Certainly for me as a fan, and I think for many others, because attendances had... had, had had fallen since the, um, I suppose since since the decline set in in the the, the big late eighties, beginning of the nineties, 
And I think the Wimbledon game made a lot of people wake up to what the club meant to them and uh, brought people back because, you know, they were so close to, you know, falling off a cliff. Mm. Yeah, big big game. We'll talk about that at some point, definitely on here. Um, the return fixture, I can quickly mention with you, with you Richard, 14th of March uh, 1994. It was a 2-1 win for Liverpool at Anfield. Uh, the last derby goal, or last league derby goal for Ian Rush, and the first for a certain 18-year-old Robbie Fowler. Uh, local lad comes good against the rivals. Uh, just a story we all love, isn't it? Yeah, especially from a little side of things where you know the local core is, is, is strong as much as it is at Everton. But um, that was a bit, that was a brilliant derby because it was the last one in front of the standing cop, and it was the sort of game that that you know you have that thing of, of passing the baton from the, from the old guard to the new era. So obviously, Rush scoring his last one and and Robbie scoring his first. And I think I mean Robbie's goal was a really good hit. I yeah. mean you can see it on YouTube still. It's it's, it's low and it's 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 on the floor. But you know when you hear it after you hit the back of an net, it actually hits the. Um, one of the billboards behind, and the noise—it's proper flack, isn't it? It's like you're in, and it's like a, a proper clang. And you know, it's they're the sorts of goals that you didn't really see that often in the Premier League. You know, those ones that hit was full force. Um, I mean, obviously the, the goal nets are obviously a lot bigger back then, but um, but yeah, I think that was the sort of goal that when it, that noise went, the cop really just it raised the roof again, and it was it was it was a special moment. Mm. With, with Everton struggling so much that season, I mean, Liverpool and Everton rivalry is always one that's seen not as quite as fierce. Although we'll talk about some scraps later on, it would it had Everton got down gone down, Richard. I think it still would. I think Liverpool fans would have missed that derby every season, surely. I think they would, yeah. And I think it's probably the best thing that could have happened in the nineties was Everton escaping relegation twice. Because I think once you lose that, once you become that sort of. You know, I mean, you see it in, in other in other countries. You see it in Munich. One team dominates over the other, and the other just doesn't stand the chance. And you know, what makes Merseyside unique is the fact that both teams will give it a go, and both teams are still in the top fight. Um, you know, and I think I, I think at that time, I think Everton they had me coming after four to Liverpool, um, and I don't think they'll ever be coming after four. I think when the fixtures come out, the first fixture you look for, you're always up for two: Man United and Everton, and not necessarily in that order. You're always up for when's the first derby? Is it at home? Is it at Goodison? And then you look at when you play United, and then everyone else around after that is incidental, really. So, but I think around that time, I think Liverpool were more preoccupied with trying to catch United, and and you know, do seeing United taking their their former throne routinely, and thinking we need to be up there. So I think maybe the preoccupation had set in, but I, I do think that Everton beating the drop was was the best thing in terms of you know not just for the club but also for the for the rivalry with Liverpool. Yes, sadly, this 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 win was the last for a few seasons as well for Liverpool. It came, it started kind of a a trend where Everton would, especially at, high, at Goodison, were much on top. And we'll talk about ninety four, ninety five next, twenty first of November. This is a game I remember really vividly as well. Joe Royal's first game in charge, show a much heralded figure coming back to Goodison Park. A big Duncan Ferguson header and Paul Ride out. So I mean, this must be one that sticks out properly in the, in the memory. That big corner and that big header from Duncan and Joe Royal kicking off the new regime. Yeah, it was a hugely significant win. Um, certainly one of the most important derby wins in my lifetime. Um, you know, Mike Walker just didn't connect with that group of players. He tried to get them playing a, a style of football that didn't suit them. Um, Joe Royal came in at the beginning of November, told the players they'd been a soft touch and basically got them fitter, got them better organised, played to the strengths. And um, you know it, it came to came to the fore in that derby game. Um, I mean, we talk about Duncan. You know, I think he'd been he'd been done for drink driving about thirty six yeah. hours before that game. Um, he hadn't scored for Everton up, up to that point. You know, he had a pretty kind of low key loan spell, and suddenly he came to life and 
and the whole team and the club came to life again. Um, so it was a great, great night. Mm. Richard, I mean, this is one on the opposite side for you, but I mean, from an, for the storyline of the nineties and the on the and the derby, this this just sticks out as Richard says, didn't it, as as a big moment for Everton. I think it's definitely every awakening of Everton that certainly in that period. I think you know Yorker at the Walker era, and it, it was it was dire. I mean, even if you're on the other side of, of the fence, you, you have to admit it was dire. And you know, I know I know rivals don't really you know shy to eye on this thing, and I can't imagine there was many. There's many um, film sympathy for Liverpool when he has Roy Hodgson in charge, but I mean Walker, Walker had really taken Everton to a, to a sharp decline, and and I think that I think the Royal appointment was was significant, not just for him coming in as a former player, obviously he'd done well with Oldham, but also he brought in Willie Donaghy, which as Simon alluded to, you know, there was a, there was a stronger way in the team, and, and I think a lot of people, a lot of the players, especially Neville Southall and Andy Hinchcliffe, credit that to Willie Donaghy, and you, you, you saw the benefits within. Within a matter of weeks, really, obviously that derby was um, was probably probably the, the catalyst for it. But um, I mean, I think from the Liverpool side of things, I think that was when you know Liverpool started having a few problems defensively. And I think, um, unless I'm mistaken, I think a certain David James was in goal that night. And uh, I think if we knew if we knew what we knew now, I think I think that might have been uh, the time to uh, get rid. <laughs> Poor old Jamo, Mike Walker as well. Let's quickly touch on him, um, Simon, because. He's such an anomaly from the 90s. Did so well at Norwich in that famous 93 uh, win at Bayern Munich. Went to Everton, obviously didn't turn out well. And then that was it. I mean, it's very unheard of to someone just completely fall off. And as you say, never really connected to... Was it too big a club for somebody of his stature? Yeah. Um, you speak to somebody like Neville Southall and he'll say just that. Um, they Walker, did, Walker took over a good team in Norwich and a good group of players and sort of kept it going. There was continuity there. So going into Everton was a completely different kind of job. And his coach was uh, David Williams, who had been a school teacher. And the players simply didn't respect him. They didn't think anything he did was, was particularly useful. So it was just a really unhappy ship. Walker wouldn't actually speak to players one, you know, one-on-one. There was no respect at all there, um, whereas Joe Royal connected with players. Willie Donachy, as uh, Richard said, was was a really clever, thoughtful, holistic coach. Um, in fact, his son, Dan, is, is at Everton now as head of medicine and takes a similarly kind of thoughtful approach to things, really respected. Um, Andy Hinchcliffe's career was turned around. I mean, Howard Kendall never really rated Hinchcliffe. At least Hinchcliffe doesn't feel that. I mean, Kendall sold him twice. Um but uh, he just he, he was he connected with Donaghy and they got the best out of him with his you know it's set piece deliveries for Duncan and you know the midfielders um, I think Joe Royal regretted the dogs of war line um, he he made a great quip I think after that derby that a packet of crisps blew over the pitch and Joe Parkinson tackled it um, <laughs> but um, but you know they, they they were they were committed players who they, they were a team and they they liked and respected each other and they liked the manager and then I was you know as, as Richard said as as we mentioned, was was the, the start of that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we're going to take a quick break there um, after talking about Mike Walker. How how nineties was that? Because we've got a special interview for you um, today. Very Merseyside derby related as well. I was lucky enough to speak to Bruce Grobelar uh, a couple of weeks ago. He's promoting his brand new autobiography. It's called Life in a Jungle. Um, I have I'm halfway through it, and as you can imagine. It's fascinating from Bruce. We spoke to him and we talked Merseyside Derby. We talked that fracas with McManaman, Southampton, the obvious allegations to match fixing, all wrapped up in this interview for you. So here's me talking to Bruce Grobelar on Alive and Kicking. Hi. 
This is Elton Wellsby, and you're listening to Alive and Kicking, the outstanding 90s football podcast. Joining me on the line now, one of the most recognisable faces of 1990s football, of all of football, to be honest, um, a legend of the game, former Liverpool and Zimbabwe goalkeeper, Bruce Grobola. Bruce, how are you doing? Not bad there, Ash. Thank you very much indeed for asking me to come on your podcast. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, before we talk about 90s, um, you've got a new book out. Um, tell us why, of all times, because I'm sure your story is, is one we've all wanted to read for a long time. Why, why now for the book? Well, in 1985 and 86, I wrote a book called More Than Someone and Somewhat and Bring On the Clown. And those two books um, inevitably got me into trouble with uh, the Zimbabwean authorities and also um, my, my life, really, because uh, the con man that conned me to uh, for the troubles that I had in the uh, 2000s in, in court uh, he read my book and conned me that he was the uh, captain that we took over for from one of the army, uh, in, you know, deployments that we had. So n- now is the right time to, to tell that story in a bit further detail, is it? Well, obviously, um, obviously, it, it, it needed needed to be uh, said and told in my own way, and uh, hence uh, because of all the uh, the painstaking you know, uh, court cases and uh, the life that I've had, uh, I, I thought that it was a good time to put it in my words and uh, get it out there. Mm, I'm sure it'll be at the top of most Christmas lists. I've got it sitting here next to me and I can't wait um, to get stuck in. Um, but let's take you back to, to the 90s, uh, the early part, first of all. Um, 1990, obviously the last time Liverpool were champions um, of, of England. Do you think at that point Liverpool had peaked? Um, for you, how, what were Liverpool like in 1990 as a team, and having seen what was to come, and having seen what had come before? Listen, 1990 was a, a remarkable year. We, you know, we'd gone through the 80s, and uh, we got to the 90s, and we thought, oh well, 90s, we're going to kick on, and we're going to win, win more things. But uh, as it as it happens, we we are the last, you know, of the the era, you know, for winning things, and. It's, it's taken too long for the Liverpool fans and also the ex-players that played in those 90s. We just want to uh, see Liverpool actually win the league for the first time in, since the 90s. How good was that 1990 team? Obviously, you played in some fantastic teams in the 80s, but how do you rate that sort of final a successful team at Liverpool? Well, the 1990 team, I felt that you know it was just as good as the... Uh, the teams that I'd played for in the past, and it was remarkable on how we we got together and, and how how we played. Kenny had pulled a, a most master stroke in uh, collecting players that I could actually play the the same way as what we did in the eighties and eighty ones. Mm. Uh, the next few seasons it was fair to say it was a bit transitional for Liverpool and, and for yourself with David James going in. How do you do you look back upon Graham Soonis coming in and that sort of Mid nineties uh, version of Liverpool, it was, it was kind of time of change, wasn't it, at the club? It was. Um, it was a transitional, and uh, I thought that the change uh, really came a little bit too quickly and too fast. And the you know it was in an era area that, that yes, uh, 
Graham Sunes came in with different ideas uh, because he learned him at, um, at in Italy, and in the long run, yes, he was right because today they they eat the same way as that uh, as Graham Sunes wanted us to change to. But the change I thought came too quickly, um, which proved right because in the end he left, and uh, Liverpool were were left without the manager, and they got in. Roy Evans. Mm. I must ask you about a clash that you uh, that happened, and you probably spoke about this many times before. A clash at Goodison Park with Stephen Manaman that we remember in the nineties. Uh, what happened there, and is it something that we, happens in training all the time, but just happened to be on a pitch at, at that time? Well, it, it, he wasn't the real person that I was after on that day. Uh, I was after the person that turned his back on the on the ward shot outside of the area, and so. I was rushing toward him, and I, I just thought, no, don't go and touch him because there's going to be repercussions if you do. And I just and, and Steve McManaman was in the wrong place at the right time. <laughs> had I gone after the other fella, there would have been a whole another ball game to go through. But uh, Steve McManaman stood there, and I just turned around to him and and I, and I said, and you, you little so and so, when I start when I shout away i mean give them another corner at least i you know i've got a chance coming to get the next one and we pushed and shoved and that was that that's all it was we just pushed and shoved and that's what happened as i said david james came into that time what's it like for obviously you were the veteran at the time in the team um did you relish the, the competition of david james or did you know that maybe it could be the time for you to move on at that point no, uh, David James came and uh, soon as asked me to be the number one. But uh, of course, we we clashed uh, about the situation. Um, Graham Sooners didn't really like the fact that I was playing for Zimbabwe and, and doing both of the games the day after each other. It didn't phase me doing that, and I did it about I did it six about six times, and we never lost in those times that I did, uh, played two games in two different continents the day after each other. And so he didn't really like it, so he put David James in, which was too soon for him. Mm. He, he he was he had a great attributes to be one of the best goalkeepers in the country, but I think that uh, because he had been thrown in the deep end and, and got burnt with, you know, with some of the mistakes that he had made, that's what dented his confidence. Mm. You, you moved on to Southampton in the mid-90s. Was, was there other choices? Why, why did you go to Southampton? What, what made you go to the Saints in the end? Well, Alan Ball had been after me for some time, and so uh, Alan Ball asked me, and I played with Alan Ball in, in Vancouver, so he asked me to come down to uh, Southampton, which I was uh, very pleased that he did. How did you assess your time? Obviously, it's obviously tinged with all the, the that came out, the, the alleged uh, uh, charges that you had to face. How do you assess your time at the deal at the Dell? I loved every minute of the, going to the Dell. Um, uh, the eighth of November was the harsh time where I was accused of match fixing, and uh, when I went back to Africa and came back after that. Uh, we played Blackburn for the very first, uh, very first game. Now, I'd say either them or Arsenal. I'm not too sure. I'll have to look in the record books. But I came back from Africa, and uh, Alan Ball asked me six times that I'd do it, and I said no. So he said, "That's fine. You're going to be playing the rest of the season." And I, I played 80% of the time. The only 10% that I didn't play, I got it depressed 
uh, cheekbone. It kept me out for uh, two and a half weeks. And in the end, uh, Alan Ball came to me and he said, listen, I want you to play. Go and get yourself a mask that you can play in. So, which I did. And we we ended up in 10th position, the highest they ever were since the start in the, in the top flight. Well, he left at the end of that year. And Dave Merrington took over and persisted in playing uh, Dave Benton. Until they were going south. They were going out of the league. Like, yeah, Dave Merrington came to me and he said, listen, I'm going to put you in to save the club. But he did. And I played the last six games. We stayed in the in the Premier League. And then Dave Merrington was let go. And the next manager came, that came, I wanted to take my uh, option yeah, to stay at Southampton. So I went into the office and I knocked on the door. And I said, boss, I'd like to take my option that you stay. He looked at the uh, contract. He says, no, my option is for you to go. And he was Graham <laughs> Indeed, yes, I really know I would grey. I mean, how hard was it for you at the time with these allegations? Did, was it something that was easy to block out on match day? I remember you taking the money from the crowd in quite a, a, a fun gesture. Was it something you just took on board in your stride? Listen, they, uh, I, I went into every game knowing that in the past I'd never done anything wrong. So I had a clear conscience. Uh, with, the, with the people throwing money at me, I picked up, uh, I took a cap from the steward I went round and asked them to throw more. They threw more money. I put the money in the cap. I gave it to the uh, the, the, the security uh, chapter there. And I said, you might as well distribute to this amongst you guys here as security guards. He said, no, this is my cap. And he kept the money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was good that you could you could make that known because you were comfortable in yourself that these allegations were false. And I mean, are you still? is it something you still get affected by today? No. It's all finished. Mm, that, that, that's good to hear. Any, any, anybody anybody who, uh, who, who uh, brings up the conversation must be living in the past. I don't. Yeah. I, look, I look at the future. Mm, no, that's a good way to look at it. Um, you, went off to, you went to Plymouth after that, which was, some might say, a bit of a random move. How did you join your time right down the end of the country at Plymouth? Well, I came back from South Africa. I was playing for Zimbabwe again in the off-season when I left uh, Southampton. Alan Ball went to Manchester City and asked me to go to Manchester City. So I flew all the way to sign for Manchester City and then I was told at Manchester Airport that I was blackballed by uh, Steve Bowler, the chairman of uh, um, Manchester City. So I couldn't sign and he and Alan Ball apologized to me. I immediately then rang uh, Neil Warnock, who I knew wanted me to go and sign. And so uh, he said, get yourself down to, uh, to Exeter. And I went down to Exeter and signed for him. And the next day we played against Manchester City and beat them 1-0 in the pre-season <laughs> game. Uh, it came full circle, indeed. Um, something well, I wanted to ask you, Bruce, as well, is that we've seen this kind of sweeper-keeper come into fashion over the last few years. This is something I feel like you've invented. Was that something that you had yourself or was it encouraged at Liverpool back in the day? No, um, I'm I'm, an, I'm the third on on the line of uh, sweeper keepers at Liverpool. Uh, Shanks told uh, Tommy Lawrence to go and sweep up outside of the area because when he gets in, into positions of one v one, he was giving away too many penalties. So it's best he tackled outside of the area, and, and that at least he'd have a wall in front if he'd uh, brought the fella down. So. 
that was the start of the sweeper keeper and then Clem took it and then I was there and then next so you know people look at the the sweeper keeper and think that it's Neuer that started it in Germany he wasn't he was well well behind yes that certainly was um, and Bruce you I mean you're up to many things these days um, we've seen you on TV we've seen you coaching um, what, what's in line for, for, for the future for Bruce Grobbler well, future Bruce Grobler, I'm going out to Africa to have a dialogue with the uh, Ministry of Sport, uh, the Honourable Kirsty Coventry. Um, hopefully, get a dialogue with the new president, uh, Big Ed Mandengagwa, so um, to sort out my situation within uh, Zimbabwe. Um, I would love to take a, take over as the head coach at uh, in Zimbabwe for the future World Cup that is coming up. Uh, but we'll, we will wait and see. Uh, there's also a position of the president of the um, of Zimbabwe Football Association, where the president now has, has broken the protocol. He's a politician, so therefore he cannot do the two jobs. And uh, we are going to ask him to step down or resign from the government. Oh, big, big things planned then for Bruce. Uh, thank you very much for talking to us. Good luck with the book. Um, I'm sure it'll be an amazing read and an amazing to talk to you. Thank you very much, Ash, and all the very best to your, your listeners. Hey, this is Alexi Lawless, and you're listening to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. Remember, keep it 90s. Bruce Grubbler there. Um, I think I tweeted at the time after I spoke to him, but it was one of those, we've done a lot of interviews here on Alive and Kicking, but talking to Bruce Grubbler, he was such a big figure and character of that era. Really pleasure to talk to him and some great memories there. Uh, we're cracking on with our look back at the Merseyside derbies of the 90s. We've reached the 95-96 season. Before we get there, and I haven't briefed the guys on this, so I'm, I'm sure they'll be able to, to get this though. When I was looking back at these at the weekend, I was watching a lot of these Merseyside derbies and people on this podcast will know I love kits. Some of the kits in these games are absolutely just legendary. So quick favourite from each um, from each side. Simon, your favourite Everton kit from, from the 90s? Uh, the the one from, from that derby we've just spoken about when um, Ferguson got the header, I'd say. Is that the big collar one, isn't it? The polo shirt type one. It, yeah, with the, with the nice white collar. Yeah, uh, yeah NEC. The last NEC top it was. Yeah, good shout, uh, Richard. On the red side, what would you go for? Well, I mean, pro- probably the same, the same game. The Liverpool kit that with the uh, the Adidas with the three flashes up the side. Yeah. That was the first kit I had. Well, was seven. I got that as my first kit. Because um, the ones, the ones that you had that weren't great. I mean, you had the, the off the shoulder one um, at the early nineties. Then you had the weird cricket jumper collar one. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, the derby. Um, and the, um, I think after that you had the crew neck and you had yeah. a, 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 a Reebok collar. Neither of them really, really spoke to me. I think the first one, you obviously remember your first one. I think probably that was probably the one. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the old candy one as well from the from the four four as well. That's a classic kit. Um, ninety five, ninety six, we're on to now, and this Merseyside season is all about two players: Robbie Fowler and Andre Konchelskis, a man who's played in many many derbies, but he made this season his own. Um, in 18th of November 1995, it was Liverpool 1, Everton 2. Two goals from Andre Kinchelskis, his first for Everton. Simon, how is Andre Kinchelskis remembered at Everton? Uh, pretty fondly. I mean, I don't think he's a player who who necessarily won the hearts of any one club because he, you know, he didn't stick around too long anywhere. Um, 
but he, he had a brilliant, brilliant season that year at Everton. Um, and I remember seeing a, a pre-season game. It was actually the following uh, late summer at Wrexham, where Everton won 4-3. Uh, Everton were terrible, but Konchelskis just kept running down one end and scoring. Um, he scored all four goals. Um, but he, he'd begun that season with a shoulder injury. He, he dislocated his shoulder in a, in a challenge with, with Lee Sharp when, Ever- when Man United came to Goodison. Um, so, which is why you know we hadn't really seen him come to life until that November um, when you know he went to Anfield and, and scored twice. He had such a hard shot, um, which he, he'd been he, he was trained to do uh, when he was a young player at Dynamo Kiev, just to smash the ball in low and hard. And you know we we, we saw that you know to, to spectacular effect at, at Anfield. But you know, brilliant player. Um, it was sad the way things sort of ended there at Everton but that, that whole second season was, was pretty disastrous you know in a football sense um, but anyway let, well, let's dwell on the good times there was a great derby for him and of course let's not overlook Anders Limpar who yeah. I think played an important role in that, that win at Anfield he, he was another terrific winger they had at the time and at that point you know with with those two on either side you know Joe Royal really did have possibly Everton's best f- footballing team of, of that of that decade mm. It must stick in the neck a little bit, Richard, with Andre Kinchelski. It's not only a Man United guy, but an Everton guy. And this season, he really did stick it to Liverpool, didn't he? Oh, massively, yeah. I mean, that that was a um, it was a, a bit of a sickening that that game. And I think, I mean, I think I think it was Fowler scored and he scored. Yeah. Um, it's one of those games that you try and block out, but there's always memories. I mean, that the, the goal where he strikes it, the first one. I think it is that always sticks to me. And you know, because I was right behind it in the cop, and it does. It does stick in the throat, but you know, I mean, what a player he was. I mean, when you can walk back and you appreciate opposing players, you can appreciate the likes of, of, of Kanchelskis and, and Andrew Samus had the Limpar and, and those sorts of players, even when they were, you know, they were your nemesis. Kanchelskis in particular was absolutely brilliant, and, and you do wonder if he'd been able to, to continue with Everton and, you know, it hadn't ended so badly that, you know, he probably would be one of the, the modern legends by now, probably in the same vein as Duncan Ferguson. Yeah, no, big another player that we've spoken about on here that's underrated, and another player that you never wanted to get on the back of your shirt because it cost you a lot of money in the nineties, especially when he was had double figures in his number as well. Um, on the sixteenth of April ninety six, Conchelsea's again on the score sheet in a one one draw at Goodison Park, and Robbie Fowler in a bit of a route one scramble as it ended all even. Uh, ninety six ninety seven, uh, another one one draw to kick off the proceedings on the twentieth of November. Goal again from Robbie Fowler and Gary Speed getting in the action for Everton. Uh, the return fixture was also a 1-1 draw uh, Duncan Ferguson and Jamie Redknapp on the score sheet but this game is also remembered for probably the first bit of heat we've seen for a while in this derby um, especially from the each other's team uh, David Unsworth and Robbie Fowler sent off for a bit of a scrap at the end Richard what do you remember about this one? Well I think that was probably the highlight of it I mean you know Jamie Redknapp goal was probably rare back then but I think we all remember and, and, and you're drawn to, the, to those flashpoints and derbies even the ones that feel like the, in the modern age they feel like the, the, the script they're almost like a publicity but that was that was a real proper set two, wasn't it, between those two? And you know, I think I think that if one of them stayed on, I think there probably would have been probably would have been a bit of a riot. Um, or even if both had stayed on, because they, they, they were they were just trading blows. And you know, it's nothing you really see as much these days. You know, you see a bit of argy bargy, a bit of pushing and shoving, but you don't see you know actual swinging punches like there was in that game. And you know, I think we only had one instance of it again later on in the decade, and, and we've had nothing really since. So it was kind of. It was kind of from the Terry McDermott, Gary Stanley era of, of, of Mayfair Derby, that sort of, 
you know, getting in each other's faces. And you know, I mean, I'm I'm not one of these people who, who revels in that sort of thing. But it's nice to see a bit of bit of passion and a bit of needle in these games occasionally. Yeah, a bit of bite like we saw in the North London derby on Sunday, of course. Um, Simon, how much of the scourge did Robbie Fowler become in, as, as as an Everton? Because obviously he scored a lot of goals. So how much did you kind of like seeing Dave Dunsworth have a few words with him? Um, before we move on to Robbie Fowler, can I just mention Duncan Ferguson's goal in that game? Which Go for was, it, yeah. You know, a left foot shot from the edge of the box on the turn, which showed just what he could do, you know, with his feet as well. When he was in the mood, of course, he wasn't always in the mood, but that's another story. Um Robbie Fowler sadly was more often in the mood, um, but uh, but yeah, no, as you say, a scourge. Um, he, he's sort of you know a, a bit of a likable scamp Fowler. Um, I can say that now. Now that the you know the <laughs> the, the, the the those goals are, are sort of faded into the distance, but um, but no, at the time it was pretty uh, pretty annoying. Uh, we've talked about Robbie Fowler being a bit of a young star and obviously went on to. We're going to talk about another one that didn't quite work out in the end for Everton. Uh, the following season, 18th of October 1997, another win for Everton. Where we're on this run of Liverpool not getting a, a single victory over their rivals in this sort of mid-90s to end-90s period. Um, this 2-0 win was a Rodicone goal and then a name I don't think I've mentioned in nearly 100 shows on Alive and Kick In. Uh, Danny Kadamateri, Simon, who at the time we thought maybe was the next big thing, and especially after this goal in the derby. How did, again, Everton, another club of the Yucks in, youngsters come through. Where does Danny Kadamateri stand in that? Um, well, sorry, I don't want to be a, a, a smart arse here. Uh, Kadamateri uh, was, um, yeah, I don't know, it, it flashed in the pan maybe. Um, yeah. He'd um, he made his debut, if I remember right, uh, at the end of the previous season. Um, but I mean, Everton were, were terrible, terrible that season. You know, they stayed up on the last day. Um, they'd lost four one at Coventry in the League Cup four four days before this game, and there'd been a bit of a mutiny after that game. Where I think Howard Kendall wanted the players to go back out onto the pitch to warm down as a punishment, and some players refused to do it. Um, so they went into that derby in, in chaos. Um, and then, you know, Kadamartri steps up and scores, you know, a, a, a brilliant individual goal. Um, it really ignite his career in long term, uh, although he was at the club for, you know, three or four years longer. Um, but, you know, just a great moment. I remember at the end, I was in the main stand and at the end, um, Tales of the Unexpected, the theme tune came on, which I guess summed up the whole thing. Mm. Danny Kadamartri still playing until 2014 but quite a collected career that saw Bradford, Leeds, Sheffield United, or ended up at Carlisle. Um, Rich, I mean, what what went on with Liverpool at this point? Because like we've been saying, they, they couldn't get a win in the derby. Now, Everton, are arguably one of their poorest, they still beat them. What was going on with Liverpool at this point? Well, I think Everton had the Indian sign of Liverpool, clearly, in that, in that period. You know, nothing could go right for Liverpool in the derby. But uh, I think Liverpool were in that, that phase where I think I mean, at the end of that season, um, they did the joint manager thing with Gerard Hulley and Roy Evans, and I think I think they were kind of moving away from this this brewery ideology. Obviously, they tried it for for decades. Then they had a break between with the Sooners and Dagleach here, because I mean, I think some people would say Dagleach was a brewery manager. I'd, I'd argue he didn't really save his time, um, but it was an internal appointment nonetheless. And similar with Sooners being an ex-player, but I think that was kind of the time when. The, the, the boot room formula didn't seem to be, to be coming off Roy Evans and Ronnie Moran um, 
you know, as a, as a management team. And, and I think that Liverpool were looking at how to freshen it up, and they came up with this disastrous joint manager um, idea following summer. But I think that was probably part of the reason. I think Liverpool had reached the end of the cycle with the boot room era, and probably, you know, if you were being harsh about it, you'd say they probably should have reached it sooner because then they might have had more chance of catching Man United. But you know, you can't really break up a winning formula when it's it's been yeah, you know, countless titles as it did in the seventies and eighties. So I think it was a natural conclusion really, but obviously from other side of things, you know, it looked like the world was ending. Mm, yeah, uh, the late the return fixture that season, 21st of February, Liverpool won, Everton won, uh, Paul Ince and again Duncan Ferguson on the score sheet there. We've mentioned Fowler on that side, Richard. I mean, was D- Duncan Ferguson became a little bit of the scourge on the other side, didn't he, against Liverpool? Massively so. He, he was almost like the, the bogeyman for Liverpool. But um, just on that, that, that return fixture, I don't know if, if you remember that one. That was um, the last one before the 98 World Cup and it was... Um, the game where Robbie Fowler effectively killed off his England host with uh, he got picked up an injury, um, and that was that was him done for the World Cup eventually. I think from from memory, and you know, that was a big blow because Robbie on the top form, he, you know, he, that could have been a real exciting prospect for England. It, you know, it might have just have been Mike Owen going as like Liverpool's lead representative. You know, he would have had a decent Fowler and a decent run of form, and, and maybe you know you won't you wonder where that could have led to. Going back to Ferguson, you know, players do have a tendency to have to have that sort of um, hood over. You know, I mean, I think Graham Sharp probably in the mid to late eighties and early nineties, um, and and likewise Tony Cotty, they both did. You know, this this mantle got passed from one event to the other, and, and Ferguson seems to be the ultimate bogeyman man. Though I think, yeah, he yeah, did. go on, nice. go on. I mean, yeah, go for it. There was a moment in that RB the one-one Anfield where. Um, uh, I think you can still find it on YouTube where Ferguson just gives uh, Paul Ince a shove and Ince goes toppling over on, on his backside. And I think that was very uh, emblematic of, um, of his status in those games because bearing in mind Ince was the, you know, the self-appointed governor. Yeah, no, I remember that moment. Actually, I saw it on YouTube at the weekend. Yeah, and it's, it's ironic that they both scored in that game as well. Um, a couple of more games we're going to touch on. Um, this isn't one of them, but the 17th of October, the following season, was a goalless draw at Goodson Park. The return leg, quite a game. Liverpool 3, Everton 2. Liverpool's first win for five seasons over Everton. Uh, Robbie Fowler with two goals. Patrick Berger on the score sheet. Uh, Everton had Olivier de Court and Francis Jeffers. Uh, but this game is remembered by a certain celebration, Richard, from Mr Fowler, that sniffing the grass... Well, it was eating the grass. I think. Eating Gerard, the grass, is that what the excuse Gerard, was? Yeah, Gerard who he claimed it was something big about song and Robbie, but um, look, Robbie's, Robbie's street rise enough to know what to know when he's beating somebody and he's, you know, he saw with the game was something earlier, I think it was earlier that season or the season after with the, with the, um, the, the gestures against Chelsea and then, you know, obviously he, he has he has this tendency, Robbie, to, to, to get a reaction out of people similar to, I'd even argue, Steven Gerrard in his first of years in the Liverpool team, you know, he did that thing of of cupping his ear to the, to the, to the main stand at Goodison and sticking his tongue out, and and Robbie was very much from that from that sort of school of thought, you know, how much it meant to him, um, and I think it, it probably lessened the impact of the actual game because there's some brilliant goals in that yeah. game, not least the um, the Olivier de Coran, which pains me to say is a Liverpool fan, but um, it was a remarkable game, and you know, end to end, and you know, I mean, how many times do you get a five goal filler in the Merseyside derby these days? What did you make of that celebration as an Everton fan, Simon? I mean, it's an, it's a dumbass celebration, but what did you think of it at the time? Uh, again, it's funny, you know, t- t- time changes your perspective on these things, and now it's, it is, I suppose, quite quite amusing. Um, at the time, you know, Fowler was 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 the nemesis, so you, you, 
obviously I didn't like it, but um, you know he was getting a fair amount of stick in the city, and he was giving it back, which you know that's the kind of character he is, as Richard said. Yeah, indeed he was. Uh, the last game we're going to look at then is the last game of the decade from the 1999-2000 season. We've reached that point in the decade. Uh, 27th of September, it was Liverpool nil, Everton 1. Um, another win for Everton at Anfield, France to uh, Kevin Campbell's fourth-minute goal. Uh, but this is also, remember, for another scrap. I think Richard alluded to it earlier, but it's coming to you first, Simon. Francis Jeffers, another youngster that didn't quite make it in the end at um, Goodison, and Sander Vestervelt, they got into a bit of a, a scrap on this one, didn't they? Yeah, well, I would say Jeffers did make it a good mistake of then going to Arsenal. Um, and Jeffers and Campbell had a brilliant partnership. Uh, Campbell's such a clever player, uh, and Jeffers, you know, fed off him. Um, it was one of the most exciting partnerships. You know, we don't see partnerships these days, really, but that, yeah. that, that, one of the most exciting partnerships I've seen as, as an Evertonian um, since, you know, since the 80s heydays. Um, the scrap, um, I suppose, Jeffers was... Um, was Everton's fouler, you know, a bit of a scally. It meant the game meant a lot for him and he just got caught up in something. Mm, no, yeah. What do you remember of it, Richard? I mean, Jack, Stephen Gerrard also got sent off in this game late on, but he was it was a bit like the Grobbler, the way that the hands are in the face and everything incident, but this time it was red versus blue. It was a surreal night. I mean, I remember it. I remember it, like it was yesterday. I mean, it was the sort of game where, I don't think we've had it since, you've, you've got red and blue intermingling. In bit, uh, across the stadium. I mean, I was on the cop, and you know there was Everton fans, and weren't even hiding the allegiances. They had the Everton shirts on with the big one-to-one sponsors. Some had Everton badges on them, and you know wearing blue shirts. They were singing, jumping up when they scored. And it was, it was, uh, it was a strange atmosphere because it was the sort of thing where they obviously got that win, and that was, you know, it's, it's been a long time since since they've had one since. But you know, it did feel like. They really went to town on, on the celebration, like in the in the stadium and outside the stadium. You know, they were. They weren't, um, weren't shy about it, as you can imagine. Um, it was a remarkable game, really. I mean, obviously, the camel goals were well taken goal in, in its own right. But then when you look at the, the fracas between Westerveld and um, and Jeffers, um, and then obviously the Gerrard challenge, which wouldn't actually be his first um, rash one in the midside derby. But, you know, it was clearly... It was, that was probably the last time you've had a bona fide ding-dong of a derby. Like, really, two players and, 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 you know, two sets of teams going at it in a game and... You know, I remember that that game because when Westfield got sent off, we had used all three substitutes. So uh, Steve Stoughton had to throw on Westfield top and go and goal and made a couple of good saves near the end. But um, it was it, it was one of those nights where I think I mean Liverpool season pieces I was sent to nothing by the end of it. And um, you know, it was one of those games that you know it's it, it is it is a, a blemish on the season, even even one as forgettable as the as the nineteen ninety two thousands. We mentioned, Simon, the record that uh, Liverpool had in that, but this is obviously the last win that Everton have had at Anfield. What What is it that's been since that you can't quite get it in, in together when the game's uh, in the Merseyside derby? Well, um, I, I think that the... Um, I know I know this is about the 90s. I, I think the this run of, of, of Everton doing quite well in derbies, a real kind of end point was when McAllister scored the another injury time winner uh, in 2001. Yeah. Emma Goodison, uh, where Liverpool hadn't won for ten years, I think um, that was a real. I think that 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 propelled Liverpool on to go in the treble. Um, at least that's what I've heard Jamie Carragher talk about. And it, for Everton, for me, since then they haven't. You know, Liverpool have definitely had the upper hand. Um, what is it? I mean, you ask, you tell me. I mean, even when they play well and they and you know they they go there with no fear, play with no fear, they end up um, 
you know, empty-handed and a little bit broken-hearted as they did on Sunday. Um, so, you know, they've tried everything. They've tried playing well. They've tried playing badly. Um, maybe if the goalie tries keeping his hands on it or pushing over a cross in the last minute or, you know, miss his shot, um, that, that, that could be the next step. Um, so I, I'm scratching my head right now, I've got to confess. Well, it will come to an end, I'm sure it will. Uh, before we go, I'm going to each ask you um, your favourite moment from what we've talked about um, in the derbies in the 90s. So, um, Richard, coming to you first, if you could pick out the best moment from the red side, what would it be of, of those games that we've we've gone through? I think probably the one I touched upon before, the final goal in the um, in the final game of the Standing Cup, just, just for the noise, because if you're behind it, you hear it. On TV, you hear it. It's, it's a remarkable sound. And what, and what it... It's a great conductor as well for the cops to get that final roar out in a, in a derby before it, you know, became an all to stand. I think that's the one that that will stick with me from from that era. Mm. And Simon, for you, I mean, it, Everton had quite more highlights than Liverpool. What what one sticks out for you of, of the decade? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, the um, the, the Joe Wall's first game and yeah. the two 0 win and Ferguson's first goal it was a fabulous night. Brilliant. Uh, well, thank you very much, gents. That was the Merseyside derby in the 90s. Uh, if people want to talk to you about either side, guys, I mean, Simon, where can they find you on the social network? Um, I'm at uh, at Simon22PH. And the uh, the book's still out and ready for Christmas? Yeah, um, the World Emotion is, 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 you know, a nice Christmas stocking filler. And also, if anyone wants a bit of Everton nostalgia, here we go. The Everton in the 80s book I did. Definitely, yeah, a little bit, bit decade before. But yeah, we're always up for a bit of nostalgia around here, of course. And Richard, if people want to get in touch with you, I mean, you've done some great stuff with Jaden Sancho um, over the last couple of weeks. Where can people find you on the on the Twitter? Um, so it's Richard Buxton underscore on Twitter. Good stuff. Well, thank you very much, gents. Uh, if you want to follow the show, it's at AK90s on Twitter and at AK90sPod on Instagram. I've been Ash Rose. Follow myself at Ash Rose UK. Um, share, subscribe, rate, review, as always here. And as I always say, until next time, keep it 90s.